Welcome to The Unconventional Path, Entrepreneurship and Innovation Stories and Ideas. Hi, I'm Bela Musitz, coming to you from snowy upstate New York. I'm a former three-time entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and business school professor. And coming to you from Münster, Germany, I'm Mike Wasserman, Professor of International Management at the Münster University of Applied Sciences. Thanks for joining us today. When Bela and I were both on the faculty of Clarkson University, we used to have lots of interesting conversations about how the world is changing, and really specifically about how innovation and entrepreneurship are changing. We do this over coffee or over lunch, as time allowed. And almost two years ago, I moved to Germany, and then shortly thereafter, Bela retired. Uh, but Bela had this kind of wacky idea to continue these conversations in the form of a podcast uh, and invite other people to actually listen in on these. And I thought, honestly, this is a horrible idea. I, I don't consider myself a podcast guy. I don't like my voice. But uh, Bela was right as usual. We've had a great time so far. Yeah. So join us each week as we talk with interesting people we've met to share stories, ideas, and insights into innovation, entrepreneurship, and the people that take unconventional paths to find happiness in life and at work. So Bela, tell us about this week's episode. Before we dive into today's interview, I just want to remind our listeners that one of the key elements of this podcast is to interview business founders we can all identify with. We've had coffee roasters on the show, software developers, business consultants, cafe and restaurant owners. We're not trying to discuss how to start the next Facebook or Google. We want to bring you stories that hopefully will inspire you and for help you to realize, hey, I can do that, and then take the first step to start your business journey. This week's guest is Tammy Cole. She purchased a business from a founder who ran it for over 20 years. As you can imagine, that came with its set of challenges. Definitely, Bela. This is an interesting interview, and I'm excited to get to it. But before we begin, uh, let me take a second to remind our listeners that this podcast is brought to you in part by the law firm of Philips Lytle LLP. This is a sponsorship to us that makes a lot of sense. Bela, you know this firm well, don't you? I sure do. I have worked with the key entrepreneurship practice partners at Philips Lytle for over 20 years. Their nationally recognized attorneys take an entrepreneurial approach to legal matters, and they have a long history of success with startup businesses. Philip Slidle is my go-to team for guiding startup businesses down the path to success. So we're excited to have Philip Slidle as our show's sponsor. You and I both know that they think like entrepreneurs, they take a pragmatic approach to getting things done, and they spot issues before they become problems. So we're happy to advise you that if you need good, solid advice starting, funding, or selling a business, whether you're a single-person startup or working on a nine-figure exit, we can confidently recommend the attorneys at Philip Slidle. Bela, what's the best way for listeners to get in touch with them? Well, for more information, contact Rich Honan, who is one of their lead partners at Philips Lytle. If you are old school, a uh, phone person like Mike and I, then you can give Rich a call at 518-618-1225. Or if you're from the newer generation and prefers online communication, you can reach Philips Lytle directly from their firm's website at philipslytle.com. That's P-H-I-L-L. I-P-S-L-Y-T-L-E dot com. And it'll be great if you let Rich know that you heard about Philips Lytle from listening to the Unconventional Path podcast. All right. With that said, let's jump right into today's interview with Tammy Cole, CEO of DocStrat. Hey, and one quick thing, Mike. Uh, we recorded this uh, interview at a live event uh, that I do in Schenectady with uh, Rick DeRico. Uh, this is a once-a-month event that we do uh, on an entrepreneurship interview series. And so Rick and I interview Tammy. 
So there's a bit more background noise than uh, our usual, uh, but uh, I think it's a well worth conversation and discussion. So hope you all enjoy it. So not everyone, not everyone in the audience may know what Document Strategies is and what Document Strategies does. Yes. Uh, can you sort of talk about that a little bit, please? Um, I will try to. We do a little bit of everything, but uh, Documentation Strategies, actually, um, it was founded in 1981, and it was founded by Ann Moynihan, who focused a lot on technical writing and um, training, mostly for the big, large state implementation projects. Um, I look at her as a pioneer in that industry because... 1981, very few women were doing their own businesses and actually successfully being able to build something that would last 31 years. Um, so we t- currently today, we're at the end of the day, a staff augment- augmentation firm. We are, I like to call us the white glove treatment. I have 10 to 12 clients at any given time. I get to know them extremely well so they can pick up the phone and say, here's the trouble I'm having or here's the position I need. Can you please find me someone? That's my golden you know, client, because it's easy for us, it's easy for them, we get to know each other. Um, at the end of the day, it's keeping those clients close and the relationships deep. And same thing with my consultants, you know, the people that work for me. We have folks who have worked on and off with the company for 20, 30 years now. So it's, it's wonderful and awesome to have that history. And my best working experience at the time was, or in my life to date, has been for a small company called DRT Systems a really long time ago. It was about 65 of us. Um, a ton of opportunity being given to people who needed it, and we were a very close-knit family. And to this day, we still remain close. That's what I'm trying to reproduce here. Um, one of my fellow DRTers is here, Anthony DePanis, and he's at Troy Webb. Very DRT. DRTer. Okay. D- Dirty Dogs, our softball team. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So he's got a very similar model and attitude. Like the, those of us who came out of that time together, we, we really just appreciate close-knit tight-knit community for our resources and for our clients. Awesome. I'm going to not use a mic. Can everybody hear me? I usually like to use a mic because it is for recording, but I'm going to skip it because I think we have issues. I totally skip what we do. So, yeah. Technical, what do- <laughs> technical writing, training. We do a lot of functional uh, placements. So my background is information technology, which we'll get to. So we really align ourselves with public sector, state government on large projects like MMIS or the workers' compensation um, system that's being overhauled right now, motor vehicle system being overhauled, and we provide resources such everything but development. We, um, there's enough developers in the, in, in the area. We don't have that expertise, so business analysts, project managers, testers, et cetera. And how many employees? I think you right said. now we're at 26. Okay. We just put so, six on in the last two weeks. So big question, what led you to basically buy the company mm-hmm. You know, five years ago? If you could describe a little bit of the process and also just if you had any advisors that helped you, and we'll get into some of the, the details later, sure. but just what led you to, to do that? Uh, work-life balance combined with... You had too much work-life balance and you needed to... <laughs> I had zero work-life oh. balance. And I felt that while I was making a difference, I was making a difference as a sand, grain, of, grain of sand versus a tidal wave, and that I was lining the pockets of my corporation, which I absolutely love. They do an amazing job. They, to this date, they're very charitable, but I wanted to be more, have more hands-on impact in my world. Did someone help you? Can you tell us, look, tell us a little bit of that process? Because mm-hmm. you're buying a company that was you know, founded by Ann Moynihan mm-hmm. 34 years ago, sole leader all that time, face of the company. Yep. So what was that process like, and did anybody help you along the way? 
Lots of people helped me along the way. Um, I think what really drew me to Anne and this particular company is that she had been in the business so long, very much community, she was very community oriented and very much aligned with what I wanted to give back and what I wanted to be doing. I wanted to do, I wanted to take what she had done and then expand it into more of my general expertise area. Um, and that made it easy in terms of who helped me. Um, at the time, it was my, um, I want to say, six-year-old son who spurred the absolute final decision that I needed to change what I was doing. Really? Um, How? What do you do? <laughs> I, was, um, I was a project manager on a project, and it was a, um, my, my stakeholder, main, main partner in the company was on the West Coast, and I got a call at night, and it was mommy-son date night. And um, the partner needed data. The system that I was responsible for was not giving him the data he needed. So I needed to resolve that. You don't say no to a partner. So I'm on the phone. I'm on the computer. I'm talking to, at this point, the system I was, I was responsible for had my developers in India, my testers in China, my development team on shore was spread throughout the country. A lot of people weren't answering their phones. It was a fun evening. And he finally gave up trying to get me to stop working and took his little blanket that he was obsessed with, put it on the floor on my feet on the kitchen floor and just laid there. And I was like, okay, there's nothing, nothing worth this in the world. So I said, okay, from this point forward, I need to find something that's going to keep me a little bit out, a little bit more in control of my schedule. Control. Excellent. Excellent. So you buy the company. <laughs> yeah. You acquire the company. Yes. So what was that first day like? Oh, how about the first three months leading up to that first day? Okay, <laughs> we, go. We, um, it, well, one, it took me a year. I, I mean, I don't know who's, who has their own business or who's decided to take that step. One, kudos to anyone who started from scratch. I know I don't have that in me as an entrepreneurial person. Um, I bought because I had a foundation. I had a baseline. I had infrastructure. Doing it from scratch, absolutely, I don't think it would have happened. So um, the... The coming, the the deciding to buy it, it was like a light switch. Talk about mentors. I had some mentors. I was taking a leadership program, and the question was, the question that made me say yes, I want to buy it was, if you had to, if you had, if you lost everything you owned today, your house, your just everything material today, to obtain the positives or the pros that you think you will get from owning this business and making it successful are you willing to give up everything? And for me at that point, and no. he said, you can't say yes or no. Or he was, you can't say maybe. It has to be yes or no. And, of course, I started the, uh, no, yes or no. So I was able to say, yeah, I'm employable. I can get a job. I don't care. Stuff doesn't bother me. You know, I want this life. And so from that second on, I didn't turn back. That's great. Three months of negotiating. I mean, more than three months, but literally three months of you're closing tomorrow, you're closing tomorrow, you're closing tomorrow. So it was a very painful process for Ann and I the last three months. Um, but we finally got there. And are you still talking? Oh, yeah. No, I'm yeah, just yeah, yeah. I know you are. I knew that answer to that question. <laughs> yes, yes. She's, um, she's having a fun time of her life. And one of the things that I remember the most is I worked with her a few weeks before the, the actual transition just to get to know the clients, the, the accounts, what I was getting myself into. And I would go into her office all excited and pumped up and ready to kind of take on the world. And she'd be sitting there a little stressed out and a little – and she goes – you just wait. I give you three months before the tables turn. It took me a little longer, but when I did see her, I was like, "Okay, Anne, you're right. <laughs> it's not quite as giddy and all this when it's not when you know everything's on your shoulders." But 
it went well. Day one was good. Um, she did not stay on. We agreed. We had a transition period because I had been there for about a month before. Um, so she, she went on her way, took care of any questions I had through the phone, and that was it, off and running. I should say, I didn't say it at the beginning, we do like to engage you early on, so I'll be poking my head if you have anything, just kind of make a wave of some sort, and we'll try to get you in early so you don't have to wait to the very end. So let's go back to that first day. So it sounds like with this a 30-day transition or so, so folks okay. knew the company was going to be sold. They knew you were coming, so it, didn't, I, it wasn't like a surprise, right? Or was not it really. It was probably the worst kept secret because I was brought in as a, I was working as a consultant, you oh, know, okay. and I, it was until it actually closed, we didn't, you know, that we didn't say anything. There was it was it could we had been waiting three months, so it was she's working here as a consultant, learning some things, figuring out where she can help us out, and oh. then on the fifth of February, it was okay, yeah. So did you? So my so my, my question earlier is still good. So that first day, right? Yeah. So oh. February, what day was it? Fifth. Fifth. So the morning of February fifth, you walk in yeah. to the office, and so what was that? It like? was the afternoon because we closed in the morning, and uh, came in. And it was just like anything else. Didn't talk to excuse me. Didn't talk to anybody of the any of the employees. Kind of um, spoke with the gentleman who had been acting as her COO for a couple of years, and he knew the process. So he and I had a long conversation, and his plan was to exit. But, of course, you know, I got him to stay for a while. <laughs> he really helped me. And so day two came, and that's when I started making changes. I knew just looking at her overhead, you know, what direction I wanted to change, where I needed to go, just to be what I thought we needed to be to continue what we had and to grow. Um, so, yeah, so day two I came in and had to fire my first employee, lay day off two. my first employee. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that wasn't fun. But it's something I knew. So the when first I, time you ever had to yeah, fire somebody? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's always fun. Had to do it a few more times, but, you know, it, it gets easier when you think about... So you said we were softening the question. She got right to the punch. So uh, well, that's the hardest so part. It's like take on, eat the darn tell us, frog. Um, it's not that... that Eat the frog. Explain that, because maybe not everybody knows what the eat the frog expression is. Eat the frog. The last thing you want to eat in front of you. What, whatever the thing you're most afraid of, the thing that's going to take the most time, the thing you're procrastinating, procrastinating against, take it on first. It's because you can't enjoy anything else knowing that that's hanging over your head. It took me a really long time to learn that, and I'm still learning a whole lot of stuff. But that's well, one of the things. Day two is not that long. I mean, well, was... no, I, I had time as I was like, okay, this person has to go, and this so what, one I'm questionable. Was it because they weren't fitting into the culture, or was it their job? You know, was there just a change in the culture that you were trying to create? Probably give me a sense of what, because people in this audience probably maybe have some difficult decisions they may be facing or have already had to face. Maybe that you can was get some three insight. and a half years ago. I really know. Um, the first one was easy because it was a business model approach I didn't agree with. It was, okay. you know, someone in-house, and um, I had gotten some feedback. I had talked to, you know, I had, I had some idea about this person. So it was more of a performance issue okay. along with the way her um, salary model and all of that was based. So I was like, you know what, I'm going in a new direction. It made it very easy not to just rip the Band-Aid, to not say, we'll give it 30 days and see how it goes. It was right. kind of come in and say, it's got nothing to do with you. It's got to do with, this is not what I see for this position. Very sorry. Here's a severance. And go... Yeah, what someone says, um, freed or future. You know, freeing someone's future is what yeah. they call it instead oh, of firing. That's a nice colloquialism. Yes, we're freeing your we're future freeing to your go future. do the next thing, exciting thing in your so life. So I get an email from Tony today that says, I'm freeing your future, oh. Rick. <laughs> no, 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 don't use those words. <laughs> I'll be in trouble. <laughs> well, I'll be in trouble. Mm. 
So, Tammy, you, you said that you had a slightly sort of different vision for where the company should go and, mm -hmm. and the things that you should be doing. So how did you communicate that vision to the employees that were now part of the business that you were running? Um, I think it was very easy for the um, employees that were there. Because of the type of work we do, we're very contract-based. Um, we are not a large organization. We are not um, able to keep people on if we don't have work for them, which is something I would love to change in the future. But to be honest, I don't know where we are three years from now. I could be doing selling completely different services in three years. So um, we're temporary project-based employees, so one-on-one -on -one conversations with each of them, talking about their project, when their project was up, and one of my goals is always to know when are they getting rolled off their project so that I can be out shopping and finding something else for them. It doesn't always work, but as I was an independent contractor once, I personally know the experience of what it's like to be an island, and all you're doing is, okay, I'm working, they're billing, and if I need help, they're not here to support me which was a very terrible feeling. It was just a terrible feeling. Um, so I, I, that's one of my reasons for doing this, is to kind of treat people fairly, kindly, and just be very transparent and open with what we can and can't do. What you offer as a company is completely different from what you bought, isn't it? Documentation strategies, doc strats, very, you're, you talked about IT services before. I remember you telling me that there was yeah. a wholesale change in terms of who you are today versus what you were five years ago. Five years ago, we were very dependent upon the state, New York State government um, contracts. So I don't know how many of you work with public sector, um, but understand that New York State contracts, they have a um, requirement that every, every prime vendor, anyone who holds a contract needs to give, it's now 36% out to minority, women-owned, and service-disabled veteran organizations. Great, great concept. I applaud the governor and all of the, um, it's the right spirit. Um, and we were able to live for a very long time on that 15% um, and supporting people like the big companies, um, say an Accenture or a PwC has a project, they come to us, they have to use us. They have to use AWBE, so we make sure we're the best, in, in my opinion. But you know, with that's how we get our, our business. And um, the last few years, right around that time that I bought, the, the, the structure changed. They introduced this um, hourly-based ITS uh, contract. They introduced a project-based contract. And these are different contract vehicles. If you're not on them, you're not working with the state um, for most people in my service-type industry. Um, at the same time, they consolidated, that was about seven to ten years ago, they consolidated ITS. So the challenge that happened five years ago was the states no longer have an easy way to contract um, with agencies, with large firms, with small firms. It's it really debilitated a lot of what we could do. So I had to kind of look and say, how are we going to start working with this? It's getting better. Um, PBITS is getting a little more popular, but there's no just direct, no no way to do discretionary contracts, et cetera. Um, there are ways, but it's not being done. Agencies are not, not doing that. So I had to change and look at private sector. So you've expanded your customer base then, yeah. based on what you just said. Yeah, I so. had to pivot and look at um, private sector. And uh, at the time, um, private sector was the last couple of years, which is an interesting beast. It took me almost a year to realize you guys are different, <laughs> very different. Um, I've, my whole history has been working with consulting large 
you know, government-type projects. So um, that took me a while to learn, and I started really getting good at doing some, pro- you know, figuring out how to sell to private sector, and this, the state is exploding again. So now we're back to focusing on helping our larger clients do that. And, uh, so it's, a, it's, a, it's like a pinball. You don't, you don't feel like it's all or nothing. You still try to keep both hands. Yeah, I have seven public sector and five private sector. So it's a good balance right now. It's just they both have their own challenges. Any questions yet? All right. So can you give me – I'm, I'm going to go back to the culture question a little bit. Just give me a little bit of what's the culture of Doc Strats today? How did you change it? What kind of things are your priorities? How does that look? Just so we can kind of really get a visual on the culture because you really are big into culture. Very big into culture. I can't do a lot of what I would like to do as a business owner yet. Um, I do as what I can. One of the first things I did was get rid of the uh, simple IRA plan because as contractors, many of us don't have the opportunity to save money. So I implemented from day one that we do a matching 401k, which is different in this in this industry. I was never offered that as an independent contractor. So I, um, I really like the idea of being able to give back to our folks and have them have the ability to have a nest egg where they typically wouldn't otherwise. Okay. Um, we do telemedicine. Again, you know, contractors don't necessarily get tons of benefits or or great opportunities that way. So we have free telemedicine, which is, I would say, any employer should be doing for their people because it's saved our folks a lot of time, a lot of money, and um, it's just I've used it personally probably five times in the last five years, and it's saved me so much every time. So those things, we have um, barbecues, we have holiday gatherings, we do, you know, get-togethers when we can to to make sure that everyone stays cohesive as a unit. So one one of the things that you mentioned when we had our phone conversation mm-hmm. to, to prep for this was that um, it takes a certain amount of courage to step mm-hmm. off the curb and buy a business and be a business owner. Yeah. Uh, is there like a history of entrepreneurship in your family <laughs> or sort of where did that where did that come from? No. <laughs> no, not at all. So actually I spent the probably the first 40, what am I now? I don't even know. I don't, I don't count anymore. But a long time in my life being told that what I wanted was too much. It was, you're dreaming too big. You shouldn't be, you should be satisfied with what you have. Best example, I had a wonderful job with the state as a grade six keyboard specialist. And this opportunity came up to go into a client server development boot camp program to become a programmer and better my life and my entire family but one was like it's too risky don't do it and just I I did that and then I spent years being like okay I have no education I have nothing you know just fighting all of this and then I joined an organization called entrepreneurs organization and my world just completely opened up and I'm like oh my gosh I'm not wrong to want more I'm not wrong to want to push the envelope I'm not wrong to want to better my world and the pe- those of the world people around me wait how could I be so wrong for so long so even to this day I find myself fighting that natural instinct to kind of be small and stay back and try to not ripple the waves too much but then I say then I wake up and say wait you're not looking for. You're not looking to do any. You're, what you're looking for is right. It's okay. It's you know ethical. It's all these things. You want to do better for everybody. Go do it. 
So that's so EL really helped me with that. It's called Entrepreneurs Organization. We're all business owners um, in the capital region. Um, it's global. I've had the opportunity to go to Frankfurt. I've met business owners from Russia, Germany, Mexico. Um, it, it's such an, an amazing organization because now I'm talking to people, Darren, for example, um, when we can't make payroll. I mean, there's been times when you're like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? I can't, you know, it looks like they're not paying us in time. How am I going to make payroll? And my friends are like, yeah, so sorry. You own a business. Feel for you. That's Just, the EO people? No, 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 my oh. friends. Oh, my friends. friends who are not well, business owners. The EO owners, give you some insight. But EO is, we're so all Janelle, that well, sorry, feel bad. No, God, <laughs> Darren, Darren would never. <laughs> and then the squirreliness. Like, I'm all over the place. We had an event yesterday, and it was mind-boggling. So I'm a continual learner. So all of a sudden, the 40-some years that I have been suppressed is all coming out now, and I want to conquer the world today. So I'm really, that's my challenge today is to kind of, you know, I'm like, yeah, am I afraid? Sure. Who isn't? But fear is something I can control. So at the end of the day, yeah, I let myself be afraid for a little bit, but then just get off your damn butt and, and go do what it is that you want to do that's going to take you to that next level. Give us a sense of how you've grown as a leader in the last five, and as, as a person, I guess, in the last five years. I'm coming into my own. I'm still growing. Hopefully just emotionally and mentally, but um, <laughs> um, I have really figured out who I am, and I know my weaknesses, and there are a lot, but I also know my strengths, and I have taken on all of the um, pieces of wisdom and knowledge that I've gained over the years, and really tried to, I try to look at that every single day. And then in my NEO, I have a forum of, we're seven of us, and we are like best friends. They know everything about me. I know everything about them. And we text all the, oh, having a bad day. Um, I've had some, I've had a lot of personal issues come happen over the last few years without them and that support where I can be truly open and, con and in a confidential um, environment. I don't know that I would be able to be here today. It's going to be kind of lonely as a CEO, I think. You know, you can't go out. And hang, I'm assuming it's like there's that line of friend versus employee. I don't know if there's a, I mean, is it lonely being a CEO? Can it be lonely at the top, as they say? Or I think it can be lonely in difficult times, <laughs> sure. Um, I think that due to the type of work I do, we have services and everything is contract based. I think my relationship with my employees are a little bit different. Um, obviously, if there's something that needs to be handled, we handle it. But I know about their kids. I know about their hobbies. Um, I don't. I don't see it in that type of like we're not hierarchical. We're not hierarchical in any way. Okay. My CFO, uh, you know, are, I had someone come in doing a census. Is she your partner? I'm like, um, he goes, well, I meant business partner. I'm like, well, either way, <laughs> she's my business partner, but she she will not take on any of the risk. But to me, I look at her as my equal because right. she gives me so. She's my yin. Right. You know, we balance each other. So that's that's how I am. I'm open. I'm honest. I do lead from the heart, which I'm learning to not do all the time because sometimes it's just not appropriate or good for me. So those are lessons I'm still learning too. So <clears throat> I'm going to go off script. Okay. Uh, uh, two part question. <coughs> what what was the best decision you've made since you've engaged in this? adventure with Doc Strats, and what's the worst decision you've made? Oh, 
Just one of these, Let's start please. with the negative. The negative is hiring friends or family. Never do it. I was going to be different. It was going to be successful for me. Don't do it. Ever. Ever. Why? Why is that? <laughs> it's just painful. Sorry for my call. It's just painful. It's, yeah. you know... I didn't feel like I could say something if their performance was, un, you know, less than expected or if they were taking advantage of coming in late or leaving early or it just was very, very hard. And I've chosen to that will no longer happen so that I can have that. So if there's a line, it's the family friend line, not hierarchical. Can't do it. I can be friends in, <coughs> with my employees, but I can't have friends and family be employees. It just doesn't work. Um, the best thing I ever did, I would say, would be to actually sign the papers and take charge. Just do it. Just do it. It's been every day. So no buyer's remorse? No. No. Well, today? <laughs> today, no. <laughs> Let me see what happens when I get back to the office. I'm waiting on a contract. and <laughs> um, No, no buyer's remorse at all because it's an amazing growth opportunity. And I would say, especially to all the women out there who you know, might struggle, dive in. People want to help. People can help. And, you know, we are, there's a lot of us out there to support each other. Excellent. So, oh, perfect. We're just going to get ready to go to the audience for some questions. So, <coughs> Are there any real pros and cons to being a weedy? There's absolutely a pro if you've got the relationships established or you have the network to be able to go and make those relationships. So, And you have the people that you can provide services to. For me, it's successful because we are staffing, and we're staffing several people of different types. We're not a unique niche-type firm. I'm trying to think of something. Um, I know someone who's doing... Um, say, a process improvement firm or something like that, that could be a little bit harder as a small WBE because you've got a lot more hurdles to go over. It's not that it can't be done, but the WBE pros are when the big companies can come to you and say, hey, will you take the training section on? Will you hand give me all of these technical um, writers? Um, we are, at our largest, we were 35 people. Um, I'd like to get up a little bit more. But for someone to come to me and say, for a $50 million project, can you take 15% and do the entire thing, that's a huge risk for us as a small business. But then for the primes to take on five WBEs to meet that goal is a risk for them. So it's been successful for me. It's been successful for a lot of the folks that I think have been in the industry. I know service disabled right now is really you know, growing and being looked at. Um, I just know that, that it's a challenge to, one, get certified, and two, to get that ball rolling. So it's not, it's not an, easy, an easy path. doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, though. Other questions? Oh. Tammy, uh, without going into specifics that you're uncomfortable sharing, can you talk a little bit about the deal, putting it together to purchase it? You know, was it a buyout over time? And did that ever oh. the company? And any specifics or lessons learned there? Yes. Yes, great question. So we did a direct payout. We got an SBA loan um, when I bought the business. And so it was we closed. Money was transferred over to Anne. She was required to keep 10% because that's part of the whole SBA program. Um, and so we took care of that. I also bought the building at the same time. So I'm in Rensselaer, and actually it's a beautiful old brownstone that is being listed because there's three of us for 5,400 square feet little plug there. Let me know if you're looking for real estate. Um, 
So we bought the building and the business, closed in one day, one, one, one day, checks were handed over. We had to put up, obviously, we had to put up our own cash, which was significant. And the one thing I did not know, which I was at almost like two days before closing, was like, excuse me, how are we supposed to run the business? Um, naively, I thought the money in the bank I was buying. So there was a balance, and in her mind, and her lawyer's mind, no, that's their money. And looking at a business five years later, I can see it was her money, but for her to, to tell me she's taking that, putting the balance to zero, even though I've got you know three hundred thousand dollars worth of, of you know bills to pay, um, yeah, no, that didn't work well. So we did have to scramble at the end there. So it's just really truly understanding and making sure you have the right. Um, attorneys, feedback, you ask all the questions. I had a lot of fear going on with me then. They were big numbers, man. I was like, please don't make me look at this. Um, so, but now that I understand it more, I think that's one of the key, key things. Just know what you're getting specifically all the way down to the last penny in the bank accounts. To um, yeah, that, was a, that was a huge wake-up call. And we're talk, still dealing with it. Go ahead. I was going to think, you mentioned the word fear. So I wanted yeah. to jump in, because you used, when we were talking to you, you said fear stinks. It does. But it pushes you. Oh, yeah. So do you still have moments of fear? All the time. And so how do you push through that, and, and how does it, I don't know. Um, well, after I go hide in a corner for a few minutes and just let myself go, this really sucks, I don't want to do this, uh, I look at, you know, what's the end goal? You know, and then I make that decision. Is it bettering my life? Is it not? Does it, if it doesn't mean anything to me, like I have no desire to, to bungee jump ever. <laughs> that there's no, but jumping out of a plane scares the shit out of me. And I'm, so I have to do that. And I don't know why, but I don't have to bungee jump, but I have to jump out of a plane. Where's, so where's Craig Stevenson? <laughs> yeah, right? I know I saw right, him. Right. I was like, what? I was supposed to be at that one. I would have gone with Erica. Um, so anyway, that, it's just, I got to decide what's, what is the end goal? And if it's something that is going to give me something that's going to make me better as a person, then I have to do it to prove to myself that I'm not holding myself back. Right. Good. Although roller skating, I broke my ankle, so I will not roller skate or ski. You know. And, and no bungee jumping. <laughs> and no bungee so, jumping. <laughs> over here. Oh, Mike. Yeah. Uh, well, it sounded like fear isn't great. It sounds like overcoming fear is a big motivator. Yeah. I'm wondering what's your fortune now, this far in, what's your big motivator? Improving the lives of those around me, including myself. I mean, I'm not being, I, I, I want to be financially secure. There's no, I'm not going to hide that. But I don't need to be a, a multimillionaire. I know what I need to be comfortable. I know what my goal is. And I want my, the people that work with me and for me to have as much success and opportunity as I can possibly give them. Because they'll pay it forward, too. So you're always recruiting, hiring. How do you feel the job market is locally? What is your take on kind of your niche and sector? It's extremely, extremely tight. It's very hard to find good people these days. Um, it, it, our process has our, has lengthened significantly. We're talking to three, four, five, ten times as many folks to find the right people because for a small business. I have to meet them, and I have to say, is this person going to re represent me well? Because if I don't feel they're going, they have the Doc Stretz mentality and are going to represent us well out in the community, that's a black eye on me, and I, a small business can only handle so many. 
So it's been really, really tough. I'm looking at very innovative ways to kind of get outside of my region. And another interesting um, angle I'm looking at is a lot more remote work, but for, you know, national type, you know, remote workers working nationally because, you know, that's becoming more and more of the marketplace. Do you have remote workers now? I do. So how do you handle that in terms of just, you know, monitoring how they're doing and just staying in the culture of doc strats? How do you... It's, so far, it's going great because they're they're local, but and they're working remotely. So I can have I have a good relationship again with my clients. Ask me in six months. I'm just hiring my first two people from out of the state of New York to work remotely on a project for a client I have here. That is a little interesting. That is a little unnerving. It's but it's necessary. So if I want to grow, so we're going to try it. I have no idea how it's going to go. Hopefully, we'll continue the same way. I'm trying to cluster folks so they're in the same, you know, similar location so I can go and see them at some, like, once once or twice a yeah. year and, and that. So it's it's interesting. So but what the market's the, very tight. What does a Tammy Cole of today wish that the Tammy Cole of five years ago knew? You could go back in time. What is the oh, one gosh. thing that you wish you knew going into this? Well, because there's people here who maybe maybe be thinking about doing something like this, and so maybe... You can get into some word, pearls of wisdom here. Uh, very few pearls of wisdom here. Um, I would like to say everything. I'd like to know everything, but it's easy to say hindsight's twenty twenty. Right. Um, I think just knowing that I don't have buyer's remorse and that I am still um, married to the idea of why I did this in the first place and the impact that I'm seeing every day that I'm able to make in terms of local local people either changing careers or you know whatever it may be it's really exciting and I love learning new things meeting new people and then taking on the next obstacle so I I think if I knew anything that I would have known it could have changed some things so I'm not I don't look at it like that So looking back even further. Oh gosh. Yes, Anthony. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And especially that this is where the fear and the control of fear comes from. So twenty three years ago when I joined DRT, I was a secretary for the state handing out large checks to people who were sleeping. And I was a single mom trying to raise a child and I was bored out of my mind and I was so miserable. Then I was transported into this world, this wonderful opportunity where I was given to take this 16-week boot camp where I had to study my butt off and, and all of that. The fear that I faced every single day thinking I wasn't good enough and I wasn't going to make it and I wasn't going to pass the next quiz. I wasn't going, oh, look at these people. They're so much smarter than I. And, and dealing with that day in and day out and day in and day out, that's where the core of my strength comes from. And then the, just the unity. I mean, the, thing, the time we spent together, uh, locked in a room, drawing a, a black box um, generic database or, or architecture that could be used with, you know, agnostically. Um, the things I've learned from so many great, great people, there are a ton of mentors at DRT, great people that just, you know, some with us, some not with us, and just cared deeply to their soul, through their soul that we succeeded. I was talking to Maya earlier that... There's, you learn so many things, and you don't always know how, you know, the ROI on some of these things. You just don't realize the impact it really has. It's Correct. beyond that moment. Correct. Ken had his hand up, and then I saw a hand over here. But Ken? So what's your vision of where you want to be with the company five years from now? That, um, my vision right now is 
to grow probably probably double the revenue but not necessarily grow the client base i'd like to do more organic growth keep the white glove treatment bring in some more resources that potentially could be you know full-time hire um working force as a regular employee as opposed to project-based um, working more nationally, like having, like, we're really good at technical writing or documentation or pro- standard operating procedures, all of that. That can, that's so easy to be offloaded from companies to a single unit. And that's something I would love to see us be able to do is kind of have a team and we just churn these things out for these companies so that, especially with the changeover in staffing and how short-term employees tend to be these days, it's so much more important to have all of those ducks in a row so that you could, the next person comes in, it's like, here you go. You don't need someone who you're paying $100,000 to sit down and spend three weeks getting this person up to speed. So there's that. And then our 50th, believe it or not, 50 years will be in 11 years. So I look at that as a pretty interesting target. You know, will I be ready to exit at that point? Will I, you know, I definitely see myself reducing my amount of time so I can go on to other ventures, but that won't be for at least five years now. Okay, we got three minutes, and I always end at 1 o'clock, so we'll get, it's got to be quick. Oh, well, thank you very much. Any questions? Last, Janine. Last question. Make it a good one. Okay. Oh, pressure. Talk about your growth. Yes. Do you, at times, question, you mentioned maybe having more organic growth, increasing your revenue based on the clients you have now, but do you sometimes also wonder if, as the company grows and changes, if maybe that's also going to create a necessity for the types of clients that you service to change, maybe some of maybe you outgrow some of the clients you now have in order to grow the company. I do think that is a possibility. My hope and my goal would make have that be towards the tail end where, let's just say, I mean, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I will not be owning this company when I'm 90 years old. So at some point, there's an exit strategy. Um, I would think that as I tend to get closer to that, we may grow and morph to make it a little more attractive so that we're more volume-based or more. But there may be the next... You know, my daughter or someone else might be coming up and want to continue to do the same thing slightly differently, but small, white glove, personal treatment and service, um, then that'd be great, too. Bela, really interesting. Um, Today, we looked at another path to entrepreneurship that we haven't really looked at in the year plus that we've been doing these podcasts, and that is entrepreneurship by acquisition. Um, This was a person who acquired a small business and then transformed it to fit her passions and her interests. So, Bela, I think this idea of changing a vision is interesting. I think you have a group of people, stakeholders that sign in to the founder's vision, and then boom, a new owner changes it. Uh, From your VC hat, what do investors think about a vision pivot and how does it impact the various stakeholders of an organization? Well, these are, I think, one of the more traumatic uh, moments in time for any organization, uh, both for the organization and for the CEO, uh, the new CEO coming in. They're very challenging. And, you know, in the VC world, you see it. Uh, Company's growing. Uh, It's been around for a couple of years. Uh, Things are going really great. Um, But the original founder or the CEO, president, uh, is, is kind of now operating beyond their skill level because of the size and growth of the company. So a new person gets hired and brought in. Um, 
in the case with Tammy, she actually acquired the business. But from the employee's perspective, it's pretty similar. Uh, all of a sudden, you have you have a new boss. And, you know, it's interesting because I reflect back on my days at, at IBM and General Electric in the corporate world. And it seemed like I had a new boss every year and a half to three years. That was just part of the normal corporate cycle. Uh, people got promoted, people left. So it was something that one got very accustomed to, but there was an overall culture within that larger organization of, of IBM and, and GE. Well, in a smaller company, uh, oftentimes people sign on for, for joining this company because of the culture, because of the leader, because they're inspired by the founder. And now all of a sudden that person is gone and there's a new person coming in. So it's a really, really challenging time uh, for employees as they're trying to figure out, okay, now what's going to happen? How is my life going to change? And there's individuals for whom change is, uh, is interesting and they embrace it. And there's other individuals for whom change is a real stressful, uh, real stressful endeavor. Uh, so I think as a CEO coming in, it, it's a really, really challenging uh, situation to be in where you have to sort of balance things uh, and, you know, are you going to tear the Band-Aid off uh, real quick and say, okay, this is it, this is what we're doing, uh, or are you going to make a much more gradual uh, approach to it? And I'll tell you that I've experienced both uh, in my previous lives where I've had a, a new boss or a new boss's boss's boss come in and they tore the Band-Aid off and they said, in essence, okay, there's a new sheriff in town. Here's the new rules. And this is what we're doing. And uh, we've had other ones. I've experienced other ones that are much more gradual and slower. I think in either case, what's really important is clarity in communication and over communicating what you now expect to have happen. Uh, because I think if you do a poor job in communicating, then the rumor mill starts and then it's out of control. So this is one where I think communicating and clarity and over communicating, um, repeating the same message over and over and over again, I think is really, really important and consistency in that message. What do you think, Mike? I love it, Bailey. You got the three C's there. Let's add a fourth C, because I think they're all related to something you mentioned, which is culture. And Tammy talked quite a bit about culture as well. And this is interesting, because to me, we, we've talked a few times on the podcast so far about the gig economy, this idea of contingent workers or contract, contract workers uh, and these new platforms. So it sounds like she's got some of these, right, because her work changes on a regular basis based on the contract she has, and she's in different fields, so she needs a different mix of people uh, at any given time. And, you know, I think that there's definitely, I know there's definitely um, a set of rules on who's a contractor and who's an employee. And you have to kind of look at the profile of things that you have your, um, your people doing. Uh, and are you treating them like an employee or are you treating them like a contractor? But I thought it was fascinating how she's trying to kind of thread this needle and say, look, having some access, she called it, you know, telemedicine, right? But having some access to healthcare, because if you've got somebody on a three month contract and they're sick for three weeks, this is a problem, right? So I thought that there was some real interesting alignment of, um, of issues of, 
keeping your employee, your 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 workforce, in this case contractors, healthy um, that we don't normally think about. And her idea of trying to have barbecues and get people together, the ones that were in town, and do things that you would normally think of for employees. They're still contractors, but how can you build this culture? And, you know, she talked about trust and things like that. How important do you think this kind of um, culture building in our new reality where we have this either mostly contingent contractor workforce or kind of a blend? Um, and, uh, you know, how do, how, how do you see this working and changing in the years ahead, Bela? Well, you know, Mike, there's the legal definition of an employee which has all sorts of legal ramifications, et cetera. And those vary country by country, state by state. But then there's sort of the ethical definition of an employee. And, and regardless of what sort of the legal relationship is, you have an organization. And in that organization, it has members. And some of those members legally may fall into one bucket or another bucket. But I think as an organization, you want to treat people the same way because it's about the organization it's not about whether they are uh, an employee under the laws of new york state or they're a contractor under the laws of new york state in many ways i think that's irrelevant that's sort of a financial and legal relationship you have but i think from the point of view of how you interact how you treat them how you how they are sort of identified within the workforce Right. If you walk down the hallway at the business, is it obvious who's a quote-unquote contract employee and who is an employee employee? Uh, those are things you got to think about. And uh, sometimes the legal definition and legal requirements drive some of those decisions. But think about it with your organization hat on and not with your lawyer hat on. Yeah, my wife Sandy studies these, and she and I have done some research on this. I was involved in a couple of projects with her a few years ago, and uh, you know, we were at clients where literally the name tags were very different, and you had people working side by side, right, in the same location, this kind of co-location where the the contractors are on site. Um, but they had very different badges. They had different rules in terms of how, you know, where they could go in the building, what they could have access to. And it did, it created a lot of strain and really like a two tier system. Uh, And when you have people that you want to pitch in together and to find a common goal and serve a common customer, this, this creates some, some gaps. Um, So I think this is a really interesting concept and it was interesting to her, even just for the little bit that she talked about to, to talk about building a culture from a mixed workforce uh, and I think that's something moving forward that it's society in general, business leaders in general, entrepreneurs are going to need to really deal with and find some ways to stay within the legal bounds, but deal with the ethics, as you said, and deal with the the uh, the cultural part of building an organization where people have different status, um, but we need to share some commonalities in terms of where we're headed. Yeah. You know, another thing I thought was interesting <clears throat> is is about the risk. And I, and I never really thought about it this way until she sort of brought it up. Most entrepreneurs think about starting a business. And, you know, so they're there on day one, they grow it. It's sort of a gradual thing uh, for the most part. Um, but she started her entrepreneur career like, boom, parachuting in from Mars, so to speak, into this existing organization. Uh, and so that's, that's really commitment, right? A lot of entrepreneurs, they still have their day job. They're working on their, their project in the evenings and weekends with their friends. And then at some point they, they get committed and and leave their day job and go all in. But, uh, Tammy, uh, was, was really like, 
boom, this is it, day one, and and here I am. And and you know, it's like with any acquisition, uh, whether you buy a house or whether you buy a car, uh, there are always surprises, some good and some not so good. And so I think that's a that's a real uh, testament to her sort of uh, ability. Uh, to manage risk and to accept risk and then figure out what to do with it. I, I think it's a, it's sort of at a different level than sort of starting your own business. What do you think, Mike? I agree, Bail. And I, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about it in terms of time versus money. And in a traditional startup where you spend one to two years, maybe more, kind of on this runway of kind of gaining traction, gaining uh, funding, gaining scale, um, and you're building to this point where you go public with your product um, that you've you put a lot of time into it and you probably put a lot of money into it, too. But when you make an acquisition, you've got your due diligence and she had that uh, transition time that month. Right. But she probably put in a lot more money all at once than most founders do um, in a typical startup situation. So it really is. It's this shifting. You have constrained resources no matter what and you have risk. But it's this all in one versus this kind of a little more runway that that you really have to really identify how much risk you're willing to take. Um, and this question of can you give up everything, all your house, your car, your savings to do this, yes or no, I thought that was a really interesting way of framing it. So, so I agree. Was there a part in any of your startup lives where you had this kind of commitment where all of a sudden you were faced with this decision of, boom, you've got to it's all or nothing now, or were yours always more of the kind of ramp up and you saw kind of the runway, you saw kind of what was happening and you had a little more time on your side to, to make a decision whether to go forward or to shut it no, down. There was, there was one situation which was sort of similar where, where I was brought in. Uh, I was part owner. I, I, I acquired part of the business. I didn't own all of the business, uh, but I got brought in as a partner uh, to run a particular business. So, the old CEO was out. I was the new CEO. I showed up on a Monday, and uh, it was it was an interesting transition. And and uh, I think it's like I said, it's one of the more challenging one ones that you encounter. And um, I think it's it's very in many ways similar to um, a couple of podcasts ago. We had Brian Epstein on the show, who had Deep Blue Communications, mm-hmm. and he got acquired by Comcast. And uh, now that was a little bit different in that Brian remained the leader of Deep Blue Communications within Comcast. So the employees that came along sort of still had Brian as the boss. But now Brian all of a sudden had a new boss. So for him, it was it was a new experience. And one of the things that really impressed me about his experience was he clearly embraced that as a challenge. And he set it up for himself as, okay, I'm going to figure out how I can make this work inside the, con- the Comcast uh, ecosystem. So I think attitude plays an important role in this. And so, so I think there's, there's this notion of, like I said, how are you, how are you going to, how, what are you going to do? Are you going to rip off the Band-Aid or are you going to do things more slowly? Some of that depends on you know, is the company on its way out of business? And if you, you have, sometimes you have to rip off the bandaid. Sometimes you have to make drastic changes because if you don't, then the whole thing's going to die in four to six months. Other times you have time uh, to make things more gradual. And so I, I think that it's, it's, 
like I said, one of the more challenging and more difficult things that exist out there. And it's not one that I have ever seen a course on how to to do it, <laughs> right? There's no, there's mm-hmm. no, I mean, there's, there's change management courses, which I think this sort of can be at, that general, that, general, right. that it can be element is, of it. But yeah. this is a very specific instance of parachuting in and landing, coming to work on Monday, you're announced as the new boss and boom. Um, and I said, like I said earlier, it's a little different than in the corporate world because the whole sort of culture everything doesn't really change all that much, even though maybe your boss did at IBM or GE. But here it's very different. Yeah, it's an institution, and your boss is only one piece of the institution. The founding CEO of a small business is the institution in so many ways. So I think you're right. I think this, and it it, it works in both directions. Either an entrepreneur starts their entrepreneurial venture via acquisition – or an entrepreneur has their entrepreneurial career in some ways ended by an acquisition, right? And it's this acquisition that creates this moment of upheaval um, from either direction, either when you're doing the buying or you're bought out. Um, so I think that that this is an interesting way to look at it. And I think you're right that we don't study this quite enough as uh, and, and, and try to, to teach things a little bit to people who are going through these situations. Because I think that's an important role of educators, right. right, is to get people thinking about this before you actually have to go through it. So if it happens to you, you have some preparation, some models uh, to, to kind of build off of and to, to design a strategy that will work. Yeah, for and you. think about it. Of the thousands of VC investments made every year, Every one predicates an acquisition will happen, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So there'll be some type of exit. Mm-hmm. The exit may be an IPO. Yep. Those are pretty rare. Let's, you know, but yep. most of them are, you, you want an acquisition to happen. So it certainly is a, a, a set of skills and training that, that founders should have and that acquiring company leadership should have. Uh, and, and, it, and that's why I think we're really poor at this. That's why I think that the, the numbers show somewhere around 50% of acquisitions are not successful. Mm-hmm. They destroy value rather than create exactly. value. Exactly. They is, destroy value, not true. create it. So it's something that I think deserves more study, and it's something that deserves more dissemination uh, and education to the people in those leadership positions so that they can become better at it. We should do a little mini exec ed course on this, Ooh, Bela. There you go. I like we it. could bring, bring right. your better half into that too, right? Absolutely. Yeah. The person who really knows something. What do you something. think? <laughs> well, that's true in all things. But yes. what do you think? Should we call it a, call it a day? Good. Let's wrap it up, Mike. All right. Well, this was really interesting, Bela. I, uh, I thought it was a great interview, and I appreciate the, uh, the thoughtful questions uh, that you and Rick asked, Terry. Uh, to our listeners, we're happy that you joined us in our podcasting adventure for the week, and we hope that you found the last 45 minutes or so interesting and thought-provoking. As always, we have a couple of small requests. One is if you have questions or opinions about what we've discussed, some suggestions about future topics or future guests, uh, please get in touch with us. And the best way to do that is email bela.and.mike at gmail.com. And secondly, if you like what you're doing and you haven't already, please hit subscribe on your podcast app. Uh, or a like, or a thumbs up, or whatever your podcasting platform uses, uh, something positive would be appreciated if that's the way you feel. Uh, If you want to write a quick review, that would be great. And as always, if you know others that might find us interesting, please share us with them. So that's it for this week. 
Thank you for spending time with us. We look forward to you joining us for our next episode. Signing off from snowy upstate New York. See you next week, Mike. Sounds great, Bela. That's it from over here in Münster, Germany, where it's not snowing and there's actually a little blue sky right now. But we look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks. This podcast is produced for Mike and I by our friends at Busy Media of Schenectady, New York. They can be found at busymedia.co.